Now faith, because the Bible talks about faith from the beginning to the end. We're saved by faith. We're to walk by faith. It's faith that overcomes the world. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And a whole bunch of other things that faith is important too. But what we found is that so often we don't really understand what faith is. And we've spent time looking over faith and we've even talked about what faith is not and we've talked about what faith is and we've gone through Hebrews 11 which is the hall of fame of faith and we've looked at some examples in there. And then a few weeks ago we began in Romans 4 because Romans 4 is a, Paul is a, gives a description, a, 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 an operating description of what it's like to walk in faith and he's using Abraham as, as an example of that. And in here are really what I call the elements of faith. And uh, we're going to read through this, these scriptures again, and then we're going to pray. But um, the purpose for this part of the study is that so often when you, you know, faith does not come up to you in a Bible class, usually. It doesn't come up to you in a class on faith in seminary, although they may have them, although most seminaries don't. They have classes on how to get rid of your faith. But anyway, we won't go there. Um, but faith comes in, faith, we deal with faith in our lives as we deal with situations that come up, whether it's a doctor's report or it's a, a, a you've lost your job or some emergency situation comes up and now you, we know, well, I've got to apply my faith. Okay, what do I do? Well, we know a bunch of scriptures and we start using scriptures and turning to my Bible and calling people and getting them to pray and do all these things. But what we're doing is we're going through kind of a list of things that's kind of like the, the checklist that a pilot goes through before he takes off in an airplane. And as I've shared with you, and most of you know, of course, that if you're a pilot, I don't care how many hours you've flown in that plane, you will have a pre-flight checklist that you go through to make sure there's gas in the tank, make sure you've got enough quarters for the toll booth, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Make sure all the basic things you've got to cover are covered because you don't want to be at 30,000 feet and discover you forgot something. That's not the time to figure out we should have made sure there was enough gas in the tank because we're now going to go down. So, so it, it's something like that where it's kind of a checklist that you can go through and say, oh, I want to make sure I'm doing these things. Now, Doing these things is not a formula that if I do A, B, C, and D, then God's going to do this for me. It doesn't work that way. But what it does do is make sure that everything that you need to be, have happening inside of you is happening. So that's the purpose of going through this. And of course, this is a description by the Apostle Paul of, of Abraham and how he got was in faith. It's a description of his faith. And uh, so it's a good thing because it contains most of the elements. There's one that we're going to go over tonight that is not in there, but I want to read through this. I just need to turn there myself. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope or against hope, in hope believed, so that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And and not becoming weak in faith, he considered not his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened or grew strong in faith, giving to glory to God, being fully convinced 
that what he, God, had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted or considered to him as if he were righteous. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time going back over the elements that we've already done, but if you'd put the first slide up, these are slides that we have up there to show you the basic things. And the first one we put up there is to make sure that you've located the promise of God. We won't spend a lot of time going back over that, but since faith is taking God at His Word, you must be able to identify what the Word is you're taking Him at. In other words, faith is nothing more than simply believing that God's told you the truth and He's going to do exactly what He said He's going to do. That means you need to know, you need to be able to identify what is it that God has promised me? What, am I, what promise of God am I trusting in? So if you were to come to me and say, Pastor, you know, I've got this situation in my life, and I said, well, you need to be in faith. I'm in faith, Pastor. All right, tell me what promise you're trusting in. You ought to be able to do that. Because that's what the, that's, and you go to the scriptures and say, well, I don't know the promises. Well, that's what your Bible's full of. And if you don't know what they are, there's some good Bibles that have aids in them in the back and the front, sometimes in the middle, that'll help you find those promises. We have books in the bookstore which are filled with promises that you can find. So there's no reason nowadays why we can't know the promises of God. There's Bible software. People have them in their PDAs and in their iPhones and e-phones and whatever other phones we have and smartphones. So that's enough for the locate the promise of God. Now the second one is know the one who made the promise because the promise is only as good as the promiser. And we've seen several scriptures. We went back and looked here. Jesus told us to have faith in God in Mark eleven twenty two. So it's important before you have faith to know who you're having your faith in. And we've talked a lot about this God and what He is like. And his, He cannot lie. And His word, he, will, he, 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 he cannot fail. In fact, when you understand the promise God has made, you understand that He's already made the provision for the promise. You understand when you pray, you ask God for something and you believe Him, it's not when He goes and does it. He's already done it. It's when you receive it. So that's that. Now go on to the next slide. This is where we've been. Then you've got to choose, yeah, to believe. I got got them up here. Choose to believe the promise before you see it. In Romans 4 it says, uh, it, 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 it says, in, in hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become. The, the natural order of our thinking is, when it comes to God, is I can, I'll believe it if I see it. But the biblical order is you believe it first and then you'll see it. Jesus also says this in Mark eleven twenty four when he says, Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray believe that you already received it and then you shall have it. So you have it after you believe you received it. Now I said we only think that way in church because in other places we understand that you believe things you haven't seen yet. And I used last week, you know, a a fast food drive-in is the greatest example in the world. You know, you place your order, they ask you, you give them their, your money, you don't have any food when you gave them the money, right? You gave them your, nine, seven, your 985, expecting to get your Big Mac, your Happy Meal, and whatever it is, and they tell you to go to another window, and there's another teenager with their head out the window saying, you know, and you're trusting they're going to give you what they said. But you do it every time, having great faith that this people you don't even know who they are are going to do what they said they're going to do. It's when it comes to God that we struggle with that. Isn't that interesting? We struggle with it when it comes to taking God at His word 
And he's the only one that exists that can't lie. I don't want to shock you, but Ronald McDonald can lie. Just because they put a funny hat on him, and if, you're, if you work in McDonald's, please don't take offense. I'm using this as an example. We could use Burger King too, okay? We could use anything else like that. But the point is, we, ex- we walk in faith on all kinds of situations all day long and don't think much of it until it comes to trust taking God at His Word. So the important thing is you've got to choose. And the other thing about this is it's a choice you make. Believing is an act of your will. It's not a matter of your emotion. It's a choice you make. You chose to believe that person at their drive-in window that says, give me your money. You chose to believe them. And so we can choose to believe God's promise to us. It's an act of your will. All right, then we began to look last week at the next part of it. So go to the next slide. And unfortunately, I couldn't figure out how to bring these up in sections, or you're going to see this whole thing all at once. It'll, but the, the main point here is act on what you believe. Now go with me to where we left off was in James chapter 2. And we, we've already been through it, but I want to show you this principle in there. James chapter 2. When you really begin to look at it and take it outside of the context of church, it, it just makes a lot of sense. It's common sense. And he's talking in here about faith and works. And, that, and, and we can struggle with that sometime until you understand we are not saved by our works. And that's not what James is talking about here. But James's point here is that if you have been saved, it ought to show up somewhere. There ought to be some outward evidence that there's been a change on the inside. That doesn't mean it's dramatic. It doesn't mean you suddenly walk and talk like Jesus. But there ought to be something different in you today than there was 30 years ago when you got saved. Something ought to be happening because when your, cha- when your nature changes, the fruit ought to begin to change. And you've heard me tell this before. You've seen it when a, someone comes forward to give their life to the Lord. I explain to them that we want to change things from the outside in. So what we want to... We, but but, but that doesn't make any sense. You've heard me use this example before, but forgive me, I'm going to use it. It's the best one I can think of. If you decided you wanted a pear tree, I got a, I, we have a, a, a crabapple tree in our front yard. It's so far gone, it doesn't even produce crabapples anymore, but it used to. But suppose we decided we wanted that to be a pear tree. I don't care for pears, but my wife loves pears. So suppose she wanted it to be a pear tree. And, you know, I'm standing there, and every year it puts cr- apples out. And I just, I got an idea. So I go down to the grocery store, and I buy a couple of boxes of pears, and I'm out there till late at night with Elmer's glue, <laughs> sticking pears on this branch, sticking pears on this branch, and I get up in the morning, and I take her out, and I say, look, dear, we've got a pear tree, and she's going to look at me like, what's wrong with you, and while she's kind of staring at me, the first pear, because Elmer's glue didn't last enough, starts dropping off. I can stick pears all over that all I want, and what's going to happen is it's still going to produce apples. Why? Because the nature of it is to produce apples. And what most of us have tried to do is change ourselves into someone holy and righteous by sticking holy and righteous deeds on ourselves without changing the nature. And what happens is because there's no 
pear life coming out to support the fruit because the fruit didn't come from inside your, the nature of the tree. The tree is not made to sustain the fruit. And unless it's the life of God coming from out of inside of you, it cannot sustain the fruit. But that's why Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. His, one of his roles in your life is to produce out of God. See, when you were, that's why you had to come to Christ before you could change. Because what God did is he put his spirit in you and birthed in you his own nature. And now, see, he changes your nature. And once he changes your nature, a change in nature will begin to produce a change in the fruit that you produce. And that's his point here. If the fruit you're producing hasn't changed, then that begins to make me question whether there's a change in the nature. So that's his point here. So it's not that the, that the pears is going to make it a better tree. It's not that your good works make you a, a more acceptable to God. It's that your good works are evidence that there's been a change in your heart, a change in your nature. And there's a process as you go. It's a lifelong process. But, but the point here is the same because he goes down into this story about Abraham again. And that's what we're going to look at. We looked at it a little bit last time. Let's go down and look, um, uh, verse 21. And was not Abraham our father, father of our faith, justified by his works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? And we looked at that story last time. It's in Genesis 22. And we're not going to take the time to go back and look at that. In that story, what you see is that, that God told Abraham, some 20-some years after Isaac was born. And we went back and looked at the background there. Abraham, when he was 75 years old, God came to him and, and entered into a covenant with him. And one of the things Abraham's answer to God was, all right, what am I going to get out of this? This is in, in, this is in Genesis 15. Seeing that I am childless and, and the, heir of the, the heir of my house right now is my servant, Eleazar. In other words, I have no male child to pass my name on and my inheritance on to. And I'm 75 years old. Now, what we don't see there, but we find out later on, is one of the problems was not that he was just that he was too old, but his wife, Sarah, who was 65, I find that's not so old nowadays that I turned 65. <clears throat> so I'll be careful how I talk about it. But... but uh, uh, but, but she had been barren anyway. She couldn't produce when she was 35, let alone. So it's not any better now that she's 65. And God speaks to him and says, I am going to make you the father of many nations. In fact, in Genesis 17, when he reiterates the covenant, he says, as far as I'm concerned, God says, as far as I'm concerned, I have, I have already made you a father of many nations. And at that point, he still has no child, and Sarah's not pregnant, and he's just getting older. In other words, he's 10 years further into the process, and it still looks like nothing's happening. Ever been there? You take a promise of God, you begin to stand on it, and not only does it look like nothing's happening, things get worse. Then Abraham and Sarah decide on They figured that, that it's taking a while, so and you know, don't go to pick up rocks to throw at them because we've done it too. They want to help God out say, well, maybe I need to get involved here because maybe God's, you know, maybe there's something missing. I need to do something to help. So what his wife came up with the idea 
was, and it was a practice in those days. It's not a practice today. I want to make sure this is clear, that where the woman, wife could not produce, she would give her servant to her husband as if she were her wife, his wife. And so she gave Hagar to her husband, and Hagar conceived and produced a son named Ishmael. And then they bring Ishmael to God and say, see, we helped fulfill your promise. And this is so powerful, because what God says is, no. The only way this is going to happen is when you take my promise at my word, and you trust my promise and nothing else. And so they went back to the drawing table. And when, she, when, they, when he was 99 years old and she was 89, God came to them and spoke to them again. And he said, at this time next year when I come, you will hear the cry of a child, male child, in your tent. And exactly what he said happened. So the point is, Abraham, through 25 years of having to learn how to exercise his faith, with God making clear to him, there's only one way we're going to do this. It's by you believing my promise. When Abraham finally believed God's promise, God's promise was fulfilled, and they had a child simply by trusting in God's Word. Now, that's important to us because what God wanted to do in your life and mine is to make us alive from the dead. Ephesians chapter 2 starts out by saying, we were dead in our sins and transgressions. In other words, we were separated from God, spiritually dead, physically alive, but spiritually dead in that we were separated from God. There was no life, spiritual life in us, and there was no way we could make ourselves alive unto God because we were bound to sin. And the only thing that we could do was God made a promise to you that He would send His Son to die in your place and that if you would believe on Jesus Christ, God would wash away your sins and He would put His own nature in you. And you had to make a choice, an act of your will to believe His promise the same way Abraham had to believe His promise. And when you believed His promise, God did the same thing in you that He did in Abraham. He brought life where there was death. Same process. Same process. But now in Genesis 22, we see the story we looked at last week where God now tests him, and God will test you. He won't tempt you with sin, but he will test your faith. And so God speaks to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, your only son, that you believed me for. Now, his son Isaac, the son born of God, out of the promise of God, is Isaac. Isaac's in his early 20s now. God said, I want you to take him, and I want you to bring him to the place I'm going to tell you, and I want you to offer him up to me as a burnt sacrifice, which means you were to build a pile of wood, you were to lay the, because typically it was done with an animal, you'd lay the animal down, you'd take a knife, run it through his heart, drain his blood out, and you'd set the whole thing on fire. And God says, I want you to do that with this son I had you believe me for. Now, I don't know if you can see this, but there's a slight conflict here. God's drilled it into him for 25 years and probably more now. This is the son I've commanded you to believe me for and because you believe me for him, I've given him to you. Now I want him back. Now God also made a promise, not just that he would give him a son, but he says that through this boy, you will be the father of many nations. And at the time of Genesis 22, when God's having him offer him up on the altar of sacrifice, Isaac doesn't have any children. So this looks like, with 
Abraham's natural understanding, this looks like that's going to be the end of God's promise. But what's the remarkable thing here is Abraham does not question God. He obeys exactly what God says to do. But we looked look last week in Genesis 22, some significant things that Abraham said. One of the things he said is when they get to the foot of the mountain and they're, they're, he's, he's, he tells his servants to stay at the foot of the mountain, he said, the lad and I, my son and I, are going to go up to the mountain, we're going to worship God, and he says, and we will return. Now, remember what God's told him to do. Take this boy, drive a knife in his heart, and then set him on fire. Then on the way up the mountain... His son begins to take inventory of what's necessary for a sacrifice. And he says, Dad, i got a question for you. He says, I see the wood, and I see the, the charcoal to start the fire. But it seems to me we're missing the animal. And Abraham speaks again. And he said, My son, God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. He gets up there in perfect obedience, builds the altar, lays his son down on the altar, ties him up, lifts the knife up to bring him down, bring it down, and an angel speaks and tells him to stop. God speaks to him and says, now I know that you truly reverence me. He said, see the ram stuck in the thicket over there? You take that ram and offer that ram in place of your son. That's the story that James is talking about here. What he's saying here is that when Abraham acted on the promise God had, because the promise wasn't just that Isaac would be born. The promise was that through Isaac, you would become the father of many nations. We looked over in Hebrews chapter 11 last week and we saw what was going on in the mind and heart of Abraham. Because it said that, see, Abraham never let up on that promise. And we looked, the first point we looked at, don't go back to it, but the first point we looked at was you've got to know what the promise is. He knew the promise wasn't just to give him Isaac. The promise was that through Isaac, he would be the father of many nations. In other words, he's not only going to be a father, I'm going to be a grandfather and a great-great-grandfather and a great-great-great-grandfather and great-great-great-great-grandfather, whatever, on down the road. And so, Simply by, but he, but, so he knew God had not changed his mind. And his thinking was, I don't know what God's going to do here, but that's his business. All I know is I believe his promise that through this boy, I will be the father of many nations. And in Hebrews 11, it says, Abraham believed that if necessary, God would have raised him back up from the dead. That's why he told his servants, because he went up there fully expecting to perform the sacrifice. But he came, also went up fully expecting that if that's what he had to do, God would raise him back up from the dead. Because he said, the lad and I are going to come back and return to you. But the proving of that level of faith came not by Abraham sitting in the warmth of his tent, telling stories to his friends, and talking about the man, how much faith he was in, the proving of his faith was in what he did. All right, now you're still in James 2. Look at the next verse because that's what this principle is. 
For you see that faith was working together with his works or his deeds, and by his works his faith was made. Now the New King James says perfect, but the word there at its root is teleos, which means complete or mature or fulfilled. And that's the point here. The point here is until you step out and act on what you believe, your believing and your faith are simply potential. It's when you act on it that that faith becomes solidified and is, in, is, is, is enacted. They don't, it doesn't happen today, but it used to be when you bought a new battery. Anybody old enough to remember that the batteries, they came without any fluid in them. Most of you know what I'm talking about. They stored them on a shelf, and they didn't want the charge being used up. So what they would do is they wouldn't put the... Some, most of you don't know there's fluid in a battery. <clears throat> and they, what we do is they leave it on the shelf, and when they would put it in your car, they would take the, open the top of the cells and put fluid. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm not the... Okay, all right. And they put fluid in it, and that would energize the battery, but the charge was already in there, but it was now energized when the chemical was in there. Let me bring it down to what you do understand. Jello. You ever make jello? You take the water and you take the package and you put it in the bowl and you pour the water in, you stir it around, and it's technically jello, but it's water. All the ingredients are in there. What do you got to do? You got to stick it in the refrigerator for a couple of hours, and when you pull it out, now it's solid. Well, it's as solid as Jello gets. And that, that's the best kind of example. When you step out on it, when you act on it, what you believe now becomes solidified. Let me show you some examples from the Word. Turn with me to um, Matthew chapter 15, 14. There are many examples we could look at. Acting on it doesn't make it happen. What acting on it does is solidify your faith. It energizes it. It makes it dynamic and active and productive. And until you act on it, it's simply in you. You may be in faith, but it's not going to do you any good. Matthew chapter 14 Let's look in verse um, 34. When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. That's the disciples and Jesus. And then when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out to all the surrounding reason, region and brought to him all who were sick. Now, why did they do that? Because the next verse will begin to tell you. And they begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. Why would they do that? Because they believed that if they touched the hem of his garment, they'd be made well. But look at the rest of this verse. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. That implies that there were some that believed that if I touch his garment, I'll be made well, but they didn't touch it so they weren't made well. And they stayed sick 
believing that if they touched his garment, they'd be made well. It's only those that acted on what they believed that were made well. The best example of it in scriptures is right above. And I hesitate to use it because I've used it so many times, but it's too good to pass up. So I'm going to do it anyway. This time we're going to read it. Well, let's go to verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and before him to go to the other side. And he sent his mul- the multitude away. And when he sent the multitude away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it became evening, he was there alone. And the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the winds, by the wind, and the wind was contrary. On the fourth night of the watch, in the middle of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea, on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. I can imagine they were saying it's a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Jesus gave his word. His word was come. Implicit in that word is you can walk on water because I said so. That's a promise. Jesus made to them. Look at the rest of that verse. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He must have believed that he could do what Jesus said he could do. How do I know what Peter believed? How can I stand here and confidently tell you that I am absolutely confident that Peter believed he could walk on the water because Jesus said so? Same reason you do. Why? Because he did it. But before he walked on the water, he had to make a decision to get out of the boat. I love the way it's worded. And coming down out of the boat. So he must have had to climb down on the outside of the boat. And you've heard me teach this before. I don't believe he walked on the water. He walked on the word come. Because you can't walk on water. But you can walk on whatever Jesus says do. He walked on the authority of the word. Because he did not doubt in his heart. Now how, how can I do that? Well, one way is to speak what the word says about you. So if God's made a promise about you, say, well, I don't like to say things. I don't want to lie and declare something's so when it isn't so. No, you're agreeing with God. The word confess or confession in the Bible, the most common word, is a word homologia, two Greek parts. Homo, which means the same as, and logia, which means to speak the word. So to confess something literally means in the Greek to say the same thing as. So when God's made a promise to you and you speak that promise over yourself or over the situation, you're agreeing with God. So to say you're lying is to say God lied. I don't think I want to do that. So when I'm getting symptoms in my body 
And I find a promise in the word where it says, Jesus bore my sicknesses and carried my diseases, and by his stripes I'm healed. I've got a choice to make. Write down this pattern. I can choose to believe what God says, even though my body's hurting right now. I can choose to believe what my body says. And then, but how am I going to release that faith? By acting on that, well, I can't feel differently than I feel, but I can talk differently than most of the time what we talk about. Link shared a testimony with me tonight. He came home tonight getting symptoms of the flu. Don't everybody move away from him. He came home tonight getting symptoms of the flu. And, 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 but he you know, was in the office today, is that right? He went to a part of his office where, where, where they wouldn't think he was crazy. And he laid hands on himself and he began to speak to his body what the Word of God says about his body. In other words, he came into agreement with what God already said about the situation and he walked in tonight without any symptoms. He released what he believed the only way he could with his mouth. By saying what God said about it. So one way that you can act on what you believe is by what you say about it. Now, it's very interesting to listen to what you say about your situation. You ought to carry a tape recorder around. I don't know the tape recorders anymore. And listen to what you say about what your situation is. It might be very edifying. Well, it may not be so edifying. It might be informative as to why you're still in it. Because so many times what we do is we come and we pray about a situation. And we say, Amen, in the name of Jesus, thank you, Lord. And we go out and somebody says, how do you feel? Oh, I feel terrible. Oh, oh, I feel terrible. Well, did you pray? But Yeah, I prayed. And you know, is, is, are you, I hope so. Just listen to your own words. Because you've just taken, you just agreed with God and what God says about it, and then you go out and with your words, you threw that agreement out the window. And now you're agreeing with what your body's telling you about the situation. So one way is to speak what the Word of God says. Another way is to act as if that promise were already true. What would you do? I remember years ago, it was when I first on staff here, I came in the back door. I, it was the night we were going to have a, a, a function. And I came in and I had a briefcase on one shoulder, of my laptop flown, thrown on my, over the same shoulder, and a cup of coffee in my hand, and it had rained. And I walked in the back door and the, the, the mat that's in the back door had moved and all it was linoleum and I didn't realize it was wet. And I walked in like this and I went like this and I, my foot bent that way and I landed on my foot bent like that. And I get up and use that moment where you know there's a transmission going between your ankle and your brain and you don't feel any pain yet but you know it's coming. And your mind starts to work. What's going, you get pictures in your mind. All this stuff happens, you know. And I just started speaking God's word at that situation. I got up. I knew I had about that much time to walk over to my office. I got my leg up. I put some ice on it like that. And I went through the day. And I just, you know, called my wife and she prayed. We agreed about the situation. And, I, you know, all day long it just hurt. It swelled up. It started hurting. So, you know, I go home. Went home early to get ready for this function. And I hobble in the door. And I go lay down on the couch. Uh, and I, I put some ice on it again, and I, you know, I laid hands on it. I said, I, I took a nap. When I woke up from the nap, when I went to bed, I said, when I get up, I'm going to put my shoe, I'm going to get dressed, and I'm going to wear my shoe to this event tonight, and I'm going to walk in there. Lay down, went to sleep, woke up, it still hurt. But I said, all right, I believe that God's healed this, so what am I going to do? 
If I'm healed, what does a healed man do? Puts a shoe on. So I got my shoe. I put my shoe on. It still hurt. I put my shoe on, and I went to step out, and it hurt. And I took another step, and it hurt less. And I took another step, and it hurt less. By the time I got to the car, it didn't hurt at all. Went through the night, and it never hurt again. See, when you, see, there's a point, because when you act on it, is the point of commitment. Just like when Peter got out of the boat, you can say what you believe all you want, and you can be sincere, but when you literally step off that boat onto the water, now you've made a commitment. Either that word's going to hold you up, or you're going down. And it's when you get to that point, it's when you get to that point where you are either trusting in what God said, or you go down, that's when the power of that faith is released when you're trusting in nothing else but God's Word. Because our minds work in such a way, we're willing to trust God, but we're holding a life preserver in the back over here. So we'll get out of the boat, but we want the life preserver on just in case. Now think of what just in case means. Just in case God's Word doesn't come true. Which means I haven't yet fully believed it and there's something about when you step out on that word and there's nothing else that you've put yourself wholly over in trusting in God first time I ever really had to do that had to do when I discovered this concept called tithing and you've heard me tell we're running late so I won't go into the whole story but when I discovered the Bible said about tithing, I was a new Christian and I was a lawyer in a large law firm in Boston and I was making good money. We got paid once a month so that check at the end of the month was large. Not by necessarily by today's standards, but by 30-some years ago it was. And I heard about tithing, that it was a tenth. Now I would, a deacon in the church we were in, one of the larger givers and we averaged between 5 and $10 a week. That was some of the larger givers. <laughs> and that's what I was grown up with. And to go from that to a tenth of what that check was, my mind seized up. <laughs> now, as a lawyer, I wrote all kinds of large checks for clients and things like that, but not my check to a church. <laughs> And I remember sitting there the night before that first service having to decide whether I was going to obey that or not. And I remember my sweat dropping coming off my... You know, I remember this was my hand shaking. But as I would write that check, the further I wrote it, the less my hand shook. And when I finished and went to church that next day and put it in the, in the offering, I felt such a release of power release of, of God, a peace. Because what I'd done is I'd stepped over into God's arena. And I've never stopped tithing since. No matter what we've been through, I've never stopped tithing. It's never stopped giving. Why? Because it's stepping out and trusting, taking God at His word, and I've never seen God fail us. I can tell you, stand here, you tell you circumstance after circumstance where there was no way we should have been bailed out. And God came through every time. Is it because I earned something by obeying Him? No. It's because acting on what I believed sealed 
what I believed in my heart. So it's with your words and with your deeds. And we'll pick up here next week.